0: The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 9-13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. If you are new here, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors. Um, I wanted to just briefly remind you or let you know, next week we are beginning a new series um, called The Mystery of Marriage. And we, about six and a half years ago, we preached a series on marriage. And uh, I began the series, I looked at my notes this last week, and, and one of the first things I said was, Why am I preaching a series on marriage when the majority of those in our church are not married? That was what I said, all right? We had a lot of young people, a lot of single people when we first started our church. Actually, we didn't have a lot of people. We had a few people, but they were almost all single. And we preached on marriage, and in the next couple years, lots of them got married and made a lot of babies. Uh, At Sacred City, uh, the last three weekends, we've had uh, weddings over at Sacred City Moline, people in our church getting married. And now when I look across our congregation, we have a lot of people who are married. And so why are we preaching on marriage? Because a lot of us are married. A lot of us are going to be married. And we need to understand marriage from a biblical worldview. And we need to understand how God has given us this gift of marriage to shape us as human beings. So we're going to spend seven weeks uh, in Ephesians and studying this kind of topic, a theme Uh, institution of marriage so that'll be next week we invite you guys out Um, I think it's going to be a helpful time helpful season for our marriages in our church and that's that let me pray and let's jump in to our text this morning father we we come to your word and we come hungry Uh, we need food for our souls we need sustenance we need to be sustained by you we are um, tired and we need energy, and we know your word gives us that energy. It gives us courage to leave this gathering emboldened in our faith, ready to um, take on whatever it, wherever you lead us, and whatever comes our way, and so we need that encouragement this morning, and so I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, and the authority of your word, that you would use me, you would think through my mind, and speak through my vocal cords, that you would give me the gift of faith and the gift of preaching this morning to preach your word clearly. And you give all the listeners here the gift of faith to hear, the ears to hear what you're trying to say to us, Father. That I, will, I don't have a thing, anything perfectly organized. My words can't produce anything of lasting change. Your words can. As Martin Luther famously said, Father, that he did nothing. The word of God did everything. I pray that, that that's our prayer this morning, that the word of God would do everything. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am preaching today on the last petition in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, before I get into this last petition, I would like to say a few words about the Lord's Prayer in general. The Lord's Prayer is meant to be a universal model of prayer. So I'm just gonna say this. I, I feel like we've, many if you grew up in church, you were told two things that contradict one another. One, you were told to memorize the Lord's Prayer. The other thing you were told, praying is just talking to God, so it doesn't matter what words you say. Right? What? And we were not, we were just, we kind of like, okay, I'll take this, I'll take. So we sometimes pray the Lord's Prayer, and then most of the time we just pray whatever we want in whatever form we want. Well, the Lord's Prayer was meant to be a model for all of our praying. Okay? It's meant to shape and structure all of our praying. All of our prayers should find their essence in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is literally the perfect prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed it, right? He teaches us how to pray, and that's what he did. He was, a perfect, he was perfect at prayer. Now, that does not mean, some have asked me this, that does not mean that every time we pray, we have to use these same exact words. But we should be, when we're praying, hitting all these categories. We should begin by meditating on God, letting our thoughts be drawn upward to God. When, when you say the word God or you say the word Father, one of the most important things is what kind of image comes into mind, right? And so we should be doing our some good work, meditating on the, the reality of God as he's revealed in his word, who he is, right? A good, sovereign Father, We should be meditating on the glory of his name and at the name of Jesus even, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We should be meditating on the reality of his kingdom, that it's eternal and it's perfect and it's future and yet it's already came in Jesus and I can see pieces of it in my everyday life. We should have a kingdom focus to our prayers and we should be thinking about the perfectness of his will. Your will be done, right? Before we start asking for things. Now, all of that is to let grace take a preemptive strike on the greed that is already present in our hearts, right? None of us need, very few of us need to be told, go ask God for things, right? Right, right? We all are constantly we know we need things. We are we overneed things, right? We confuse our wants, our wishes, our desires with needs. When you really get into the human heart, we can have neighbors that are struggling to pay their bills and yet we're begging God for a bigger house. Begging God for more chrome on whatever it is that we're driving. Then the father shows us we should confess our sins to him by name. Father, forgive me for the lustful thoughts that I had. Forgive me for being rude to the cashier at the grocery store. Forgive me for yelling at my children. We confess our sins to God. And after repenting of our sins to the Father, we should conscientiously forgive those who've sinned against us and hurt us. These are all aspects of healthy prayer. Some of you have maybe heard an acronym um, called ACTS, A-C-T-S, that's meant to kind of help keep these categories in our minds. Those categories are adoration. So we start by kind of worshiping and adoring God and confession We confess our sins to him. And thanksgiving, we thank him for the blessings and the evidences of grace in our life. And then lastly, supplication. We come to God to ask for things. That's a good way to remember uh, kind of the, the categories of this prayer. And now today, Jesus leads us into what I believe is probably the most confusing line in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray as we're asking him for things, one of the things that we should ask him for is this, our father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or some translations say, so in the Greek, it's actually deliver us from the evil. And so, theologians are kind of split on does this mean from just evil in general or the evil one. So some translations say deliver us from evil and some translations say deliver us from the evil one. If you've got an ESV, you've probably got a little asterisk next to that word and you go down and you look and it says also known as the evil one. So what is Jesus trying to teach us in this last petition? Well, The first thing we need to do when we're uh, studying this text here is we need to clarify, what is this word temptation? What does that mean? The Greek word translated temptation is parasmos, and it's also translated in other spots, test or trial. Uh, I've got a definition up here. Well, there it is. Look at that. My Greek lexicon gives this definition of this word. Or temptation. It is an examination that has the express purpose of proving a fault in the examinee. Now, what does that mean? Think of temptation as a pop quiz. Now, if you, see, see, I could tell most of us in this room are far removed from, from school right? Because those who are in school, when you hear the word pop quiz, there's just a shudder in the room, right? Oxygen, (gasps) I'm busted. Usually come, like, that's the thought of the student. Pop quiz, (gasps) no. Why? Well, a pop quiz is a surprise examination meant to test a person on how well they've been following along in the class and studying, right? We've all known, the teacher tells us, this class will be a lot easier if you read the material as we study and you test yourself with the questions at the back of each chapter as we study. And every, well, not every, many students, uh uh-huh, Wow, wah, 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 wah. I will take all the material the night before the test. I will consume a large amount of caffeine and I will cram said material into my brain and then regurgitate it on the exam the next morning. And this has done, this has done me pretty well, right? My, most of my scholastic career. Until the teacher brings out the pop quiz, right? Now, we, we, we learn, you know... There's a lot of studies out there right now that say when you cram for a test, studies show that we don't retain the information. It's in there for a moment and then it's gone a few days later. So we aren't actually learning the subject. Well, pop quizzes are meant to reveal this fact. They're meant to reveal to the teacher and to us how well we're actually doing at learning the subject, not just cramming information. Pop quizzes are meant to help us prepare kind of the foundation of our learning where all of our future learning will kind of rest or be built upon this new foundation. Like if you cram the night before on memorizing the parts of a sentence in grade school, you will most likely forget what you've studied later and then you're gonna have trouble down the road in more advanced English classes, right? I know this from experience. I still don't know what a dangling modifier is. I know it's a thing, it's dangling, but I don't know what it is, all right? Now, what, what, what's the point? Temptation is a pop quiz that tests some aspect of your character. It's money left on someone's desk at work or school, or maybe just in the hallway? What will you do? Will you pocket it, keep it, or will you report it? It's getting caught taking a shortcut on an assignment, copying and pasting from the internet, right? Stealing some ideas, maybe just taking a few shortcuts. Will you admit it and confess it? Or will you lie? It's a friend request from some fake porn account. Will you immediately delete it? Or will you linger over it and accept it? Now I could go on and on and on. Temptation is a pop quiz that tests some aspect of your character. It can be as subtle as a snooze alarm instead of waking up to read God's word and pray in the morning. Or it can be as forthright as an offer for a one-night stand. Temptations come in many different forms. All of them, here's why they're so potent. All of these temptations are tailored to each of our own personal proclivities. Do you know that all of us have fault lines in our character? Moral weak points that if tested with certain temptations would crush us in a moment. Right? Now this should... When we think about this, this should lead us to kind of ask this question if temptation is meant to test our character and reveal faults in us, why would God ever do that to us? Well, it's important that we're clear on this. When you first read this prayer, Lead us not in temptation. Our first thought is why would we might be have like a surface level reading and go, why would God tempt us? Doesn't he know how weak we are? He wants us to screw up, he wants us to fail. Well, listen to the brother of Jesus. Listen to Jesus' brother here. In James 1:13. He says this: let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So this is we got something unique here. God is not tempting us. God does not tempt us. But that's not the prayer, is it? Jesus doesn't pray, pray that God would not tempt you. He says, pray lead us not into temptation. Now, there's a distinction there. God will not tempt us, but he might. No, no, no. He will lead us into temptation. Now, why would he lead us into temptation? Well, in the scriptures, we're told that God is a shepherd and that we are the sheep of his flock. Think about Why a shepherd would ever lead his sheep through a field that is fraught with danger? It could be a field that's got cliffs on one side or it's got a threat of wolves in the mountains or something. Why would a shepherd ever lead sheep through this area of danger? Why would he do it? Well, he would only do it if he's not a fool, right? He would only do it out of necessity, Maybe the sheep are out of food on this side of the mountain and the shepherd has to get them to some greener fields. One of my favorite shows is Alaska, The Last Frontier. And I watch this show and every spring and every fall, they have to transfer the cattle. There's, They run out of food here, and so they've got to bring it down to the other end of the land, and they've got to bring it back, and they've got to cross all these... I mean, there's bears out there, and they've got to cross these flooded streams, and they're like tugging baby calves through this, you know, Alaskan stream, and it's fraught with danger. Now, why do they do that? They don't... You know what? I just want a week of stress, right? I really want to just... You know, kill off some of these animals I've got here. No, no. They do it because they know they can't sustain their existence here. We have a mission. We have something that we have to accomplish. I have to get these animals from point A to point B and it's worth the risk. Yes, there's a risk involved, but it's worth the risk. Now, why would God lead us into temptation? Well, Similarly, because he has objectives for us to accomplish. He has objectives he wants to accomplish in us and through us. Now, what are some of those objectives? First, Jesus says this to his disciples in Matthew Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Pause. Is this encouraging when you're hearing this? Right? Here's the mission. Go out. You're a sheep, there's a lot of wolves out there. I'm sending you out. Now, that is not very encouraging. That, that's a lot of risk out there, right? He says, so be, as, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, what's he doing? Jesus here, and this is important for us, he's preparing his sheep, he's giving his sheep, I'm gonna call it like this, a wartime mentality he's liter- first off he 's literally sending them into temptation right They will be tempted to fear what happens if we get eaten up what happens jesus isn't going to be there and we 're out there on our own. What happens they're going to be tempted to manage their risk in ways that they just stay home and stay behind closed doors and just don't go out and spread the gospel. Don't go out there. You could be killed. You could be thrown in jail. A lot of bad things could happen. Stay behind the doors. Keep it safe. Keep yourself comfortable. Don't risk your comfort. Don't risk your current living. See, Jesus is testing their faith here. Why? What's his purpose? Well, obviously he's got a mission for them to accomplish. He wants people to come to know him, people to be brought into his family. And the way that happens is through disciples, followers of Jesus, sharing their faith and sharing their lives in a mission field. What is that mission field? Sheep among wolves. And Jesus is trying to give his disciples this new lens to see the world. It's not comfortable out there. It's not safe out there. It's dangerous, and yet I'm not calling you to stay comfortable and stay safe. I'm calling you to accept the mission of God and go out and take some risk, and that's going to require you to have a wartime mentality. He says for them to be as wise as serpents but as innocent as doves. That means they are to be vigilant. They are to be aware of their surroundings. They're to know they're going into a war zone, but they are to stay away from sin. They're not to be caught up in the temptations, not to give into the temptations. They aren't supposed to go out into the world like stupid sheep who are unaware of the dangers and get eaten by wolves. Jesus is teaching his disciples here to have a wartime mentality, to be on the alert and be aware that they're going into a war zone. We, it's hard for us to get this mentality, but some of us, if you were around when, when, the, when the, twin, the two towers fell, you, re, you remember what it was like to one minute be, in a sense, tiptoeing through the tulips just worried about your career, worried about your family, worried about your comfort, and the next day or the next hour to realize we're in a war, right? You began to look around at your surroundings differently, right? You knew life was war in that moment. Now, many Christians... Able to understand this kind of connection. Last week we learned to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It was all about forgiveness. And I guess you could say maybe that that's Christianity 101. Theologians call it justification where we go to God and God forgives us of our sins and the God, the judge has justified us in his courtroom and we're declared not guilty because of the life and work of Jesus gets credited to our account through faith in the gospel when we believe in Jesus. That's called justification. We've been forgiven. Praise God. Christianity 101. And many people, they like try to live the rest of their life with only a Christianity 101 understanding. Well, the problem is Christianity 101 works for one day. And then you wake up and you need the information of Christianity 201. Do you know what Christianity 201 is? Christianity 201 is this. I was born again, praise God, and I'm born into a family at war. That's what Christianity 201 is, that I am birthed into this new kingdom right? The kingdom of God, and it's a kingdom that's at war with the kingdom of darkness. That when I become a Christian, I'm literally stepping into a war, a spiritual war. Now, listen, for those of you who've, for those of you, for all of us, when you examine the reality of temptation in your own life, Does it feel like a war? A war in your mind? A war in your heart? Now, I, I don't like necessarily using all this war language, especially not in our culture today where we have these culture wars and we want to point at other people. But I think we need to because I think the scripture paints that picture for us. And I think this prayer, the the, the Lord's Prayer, specifically these last three petitions that Jesus is teaching us to pray, they really make sense when you study the nature of war. What is the first thing that Jesus tells us to ask God for? One, provision, our daily needs. Napoleon famously said that an army marches on its stomach right? If you can cut off an enemy's supply lines, you can destroy an enemy. Jesus says, pray for your daily needs. You need that. If you're going to be faithful in this war, you're going to need that. Secondly, he says to pray for pardon. Well, interestingly enough, in this whole scenario, we were rebels from God. We were uh, rebelling from our King, right? We were at odds with our King and we were enemies of God. And yet In the gospel, we get parted and brought in and brought, and we literally change sides. We go from the kingdom of darkness, children of wrath, into kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so to be a part of this new war, we we need provision, we need pardon. And then lastly, he says, we need to pray for protection. Jesus says, lead us not in temptation. That's a prayer for protection. From the enemy, while God does His work in us. See, Christianity is not just about getting your sins forgiven. It's maybe Christianity 101. When you are forgiven of your sins, you wake up drafted into God's army, God's family on His mission. And that mission is not small. That mission is literally, you look at the back of the book, the renewal and the restoration of all things. And it's interesting, like we just want it to happen now and we want it to kind of be simple and straightforward, but that's not how it is. As you come to understand the story of God, what God teaches us in the scriptures, you realize that what we're living in right now What we're a part of is redemption, restoration, renewal in the midst of a war zone. That there's bullets flying by our head. Like people get amazed at another headline of another pastor who falls into sin. Don't be amazed at that. Be amazed that you haven't yet. Yet. If you had that power, if you had that money, if you had that success, if you had all those people singing your praises, what would you do? See, we're living in a war zone. We're working and living and raising kids in a dangerous world, right, with danger within us, in our flesh, and a dangerous enemy out there called Satan whose only goal is to steal, kill, and destroy everything good in the world. And it's interesting to me, we have the story of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah, and he feels called by God to do this great thing, kind of a picture of the renewal and restoration of all things. He says, I'm going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's been torn down, and when the walls tore down, enemies can come in and ransack it. And, 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 and Jerusalem was just a laughing stock of its, of, its, of its neighbors and surrounding nations. And he says, I feel called by God to partner together and renew this work, to do a good work. And it's interesting, in this book, Nehemiah tells the men and the women that are helping him to keep a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. That there's gonna be work of renewal, but there's also battle out, there's also threat to us out there. And so you need, you're, you're gonna to have to have a wartime mentality. We're gonna be fighting and rebuilding at the same time. Now, I think that's the reality we all live with and many new Christians get really surprised by this. Right, we, we, In the beginning, we come to God just to get forgiven of our sins. Man, I had this guilt racking my conscience, and I need to get rid of it. I want to be made right with God. And we hear the gospel that says, through Christ that can happen to, you, to us. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us our sins. And then we wake up in the morning and realize all of a sudden, whatever was wrong in here it's, there's some aspect to it that's still there, right? And whatever was going on outside of me, I'm still getting tempted by things. All of a sudden, I wake up, and now I have an enemy. I wake up, and all of a sudden, I realize that before I kind of just did what I wanted. Now I have almost, it feels like I have two wills. I want to do what God wants me to do and obey Jesus. But then I have this thing, I just want it my own way. Whatever's easiest, whatever's most comfortable, whatever makes me look the best, whatever gives me the most happiness in the moment, that's what I want. And now the, the Christian wakes up and they've got this struggle going on. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. I I wake up, and I'm at war. the next day, I realize I'm at war with myself. And I think I shouldn't have to prove this to you too much. I think the temptations we face should wake us up to the reality that we really are living in a war. It should prepare us as Jesus meant to prepare the disciples as he sent them out. It should prepare us for life in the real world, a, a world at war with God. That We have a real enemy who wants to destroy our families, our churches, our world. The apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he gets really specific with this and he says, we're at war in at least three different ways. First, we're at war with Satan. He is the source of evil in the world. He is embodied evil himself. And so we have an enemy out there who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to tempt us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to ruin our lives. Secondly, we are at war with our flesh. That means, our desires that are inordinate, our desires that do not want to worship and love God, right? You have these inordinate desires in your heart. We're at war there. And third, we're at war with, quote, the world. Now, that world doesn't mean everyone and everything in it. It means the systems and structures of human civilization that are set against the ways of God. You guys know that our culture has, they say, this is what we want you to believe. That Those beliefs, in a lot of ways, are contrary to the ways of God. That is, we, are at, we have warring opinions here in this situation. Now, all of this, think about, think about our flesh, the world, Satan. All, all of these are working together to get us off the mission of God. Do you realize that's the goal? The goal is to. Satan doesn't care about destroying your marriage. He wants to destroy your marriage so he ruins your witness so you don't share your faith because you feel like a failure. See, he doesn't care about destroying that kind of stuff. He doesn't care. He wants to stop, thwart, counteract the work of God, the mission of God. And every time that we kind of give in to temptation and we fail. We are kind of sidetracking. We think we're kind of sidetracking our sanctification and we're disrupting our communion and our encounters with God, right? It just gets us off mission. So God would lead us here into temptation, one, for the sake of his mission, So that's the goal. He's going to take us through troubled waters. He's going to take us through a war zone because that's the world as it is. And he's got a mission to renew and restore all things. And then secondly, which is a personal reason for us. God wants to lead us into temptation to make warriors out of wimps. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, If you have your, well, actually, I'll put it on the screen. Go to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, is saying. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, there it is, trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, see, there it is again, testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, most of us probably aren't praying for steadfastness, are we? Most of us don't put it at the beginning, you know, the beginning of the year when we're making our goals for the year. Most of us, we don't have, my goal this year is to be steadfast, right? That is a word that just gets lost in the universe. We probably don't ever say it. We probably don't ever pray it but listen to the Greek lexicon again on the definition of that word steadfast. Listen, the power to withstand hardship or stress, especially the inward fortitude necessary. Okay, steadfast, you know what steadfastness is? Steadfastness is the one trait that is developed in a Navy SEAL when he gets through Bud's. What is that? Navy SEALs, if you've known them, I've, I've coached a lot of them. I've trained. I had wrestlers that became Navy SEALs. And this is the one thing that they said. It was similar wrestlers and similar to this. We can suffer. They can be cold longer than you. They can be hungry longer than you. They can keep their hands above their head longer than you. It's steadfastness. That's the one thing that they're developed, And that Character trait follows him in other areas of life most of the time. James tells us here that these temptations that we're going through, that we're going through them to build a new sense of, a a strength of character in us that we wouldn't have without doing it. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. What is the full effect of steadfastness? That you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. James says we should rejoice in our temptations and our trials and our tests because look, as we resist them and pass them, it is making us into a better better person. Sometimes it's not even passing the temptation. Sometimes it took 10 minutes of temptation to cause you to give in, to go to the computer and look at pornography. And this week it took 20 minutes of temptation. Okay, well, it's still sin. You still failed the test, but praise God, it took twice as long as it did last time. What's going on here? No person in their right mind would ever go up to a barbell with 600 pounds on it without ever lifting a barbell and go up and go, oh, I think I can pull that. Right, you go up there, you're you're gonna hurt yourself. It's never going to happen. But how do you get there? You put your body on under load at a lighter weight over and over and over and over. And then one day you can reach that barbell and you can pull it up. It's the same way with temptation. As we go through temptation and as we resist, God's producing a steadfastness in our hearts that's going to enable us to resist in greater and greater measures down the road. He's building a strength of character in us Listen you're tempted to lie The more you tell the truth in the midst of that temptation and in those little small and insignificant issues are you on your way? Are you on your way? Yeah, I'm on my way. Liar. Right? That is Okay. I know. Because see, this is what we do. We think there's some line. There's some line. Not sin, not sin, not sin, not sin, not sin, not sin. Sin! I think I'm, I'm, that, that was probably right here. Because I was thinking about leaving. I knew I should leave. I was going to leave. So are you on your way? 75% yes. My body hasn't left, but everything else was going. Right? Now, I read this example this week, this illustration of a guy. It was interesting. He, had, he was convicted of committing vehicular homicide. He was driving at night, and um, he was tired behind the wheel, and he was just trying to get home as fast as he could, and he didn't see, and there was a, a teenager running out uh, on the side of the road. He didn't see the teenager, and he, and he hit the teenager. And he, he stopped He looked, he saw what he had done, and he left. And as the story goes, most of the doctors said that the child would have lived if he would have got immediate help. But they didn't find him until the morning, and he died. And this man is sitting in his jail cell, and he's thinking, why did I do that? Why didn't I, it was an accident. Why didn't I just call? Why didn't I just call 911 and get, why am I the type of person who would run away from this situation? He was successful in many areas of his life. And he said, as he was thinking about it, he remembered this time when he was a young boy, he was like eight or nine years old, and he went into his dad's um, hutch. You know, most dads have their little cubby of all their special things right? Most kids know you're not supposed to get in there. Most kids still get in there. And this kid went in he said, he found this, this pocket watch that had been passed down in his family and the kid thought it was so cool and so special and, and he went and he was playing with it and he dropped the pocket watch and it broke. And in this moment, he knew he was in trouble. But what did he do? Eight or nine years old, He took the pocket watch, he put it back in the, the sleeve, he put it back in dad's cupboard when dad asked him what happened to my pocket watch what pocket watch well i'm not allowed to go in there no i didn't do anything and he see, he saw how in that moment a lie was easier than the consequences of his actions and he chose to he chose to lie it's easier for me success it's easier And he says, from that moment on, I've replayed that scene a million different times. I cheat on a test, a little lie. I don't want to pay my taxes, a little lie. Lying is easier than dealing with the consequences. And so little battle, little battle, little battle, little battle, little battle. And then when the big battle shows up, guess what? You're the type of person who lies their way out of problems. You don't have another option. Don't be surprised that you fail the big test. You've been failing the little test your whole life. See, Doug Wilson says this. Manhood is when boy, boys, oh gosh, I, about to, it came to my mind that it was gone really fast. That's, that's how my mind works most of the time. Boys do in manhood what they were taught to do as boys. That's what manhood is. You have the freedom to do whatever you want. Whatever you were taught as a boy, that's what you do. If you've been taught to lie, lying is the easy way out of things. You're not going to stop that. You're the type of person who does it. That's how character is formed. Little bitty decisions over and over and over. So this guy's sitting in jail and he's, he's like, he made this connection all the way back and said, wow, when I was there, Nobody stepped in and stopped this character trait from forming in me. I just became this type of person. Now, see, I said before that God's mission was the renewal and restoration of all things. That includes us. God is remaking us and restoring us, and he's, his goal is to make us, the world too, but us into people who look more and more like Jesus. Look at James 1.12. Blessed is the man or woman who remains again, steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will, what, receive the crown of life with God which God has promised to those who love him. See, God, through, through resisting temptation, through fighting temptation, through life in this war, God is making us into people more like Jesus, fit for heaven. It's a process of sanctification. So why would God lead us into temptation? For the sake of his mission and to make warriors out of wimps. Overcoming temptation and pushing through temptation builds character. Now lastly, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, Peter says this, In this you Rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's that word again. So that, look, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying here? As I am tempted and I say, Lord, lead me not into temptation and I'm crying out to God in the midst of my temptation, it leads to a greater and an increase in my faith and trust in God. He says, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation when Jesus Christ comes back again. Going through temptation is going to make better worshipers out of us, of Jesus. Now, as I close, if temptation has some positive effects on us, if it's good to go through some temptation, why does Jesus teach us to pray? Don't do it. (laughs) Lead us not into temptation. I see at least three reasons. One, clearly. First off, let me just say this. You know, the Holy Spirit, God led Jesus into temptation. We know this. God led him out in the wilderness. God did not tempt him in the wilderness. Satan tempted him in the wilderness, but God led him out and tempted him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, yet he did not sin. It says G- Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted like us. So why would Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not in temptation? Because Jesus knows how hard it is, how painful it is. He knows more than you. C.S. Lewis has famously said, the guy who gives into temptation at five minutes doesn't realize how strong it's going to be three, when you're resisting for three weeks or three years or 10 years, right? The longer you resist temptation, sometimes it's, it gets more intense and stronger. Jesus perfectly resisted all temptation his whole life. Therefore, he knows the weight and the power of sin. He gets it more than we do. And so when Jesus says, pray, lead us not into temptation, He's saying, I don't want you to fail. And the reality is, when we come to temptation, more than likely, we've all failed far more than we've succeeded. We've all given in more times than we've resisted. And failing is painful, it's discouraging. Giving into temptation has real consequences for us, for our families. You can lose your job. You can lose your marriage. You can lose your children. You can lose your money. You can lose your house. Our sinning and giving into temptation has real consequences for us. Pastors lose their churches, churches lose their witness. The world loses the gospel. Jesus wants us to pray. Lead us not in temptation because he doesn't want us to fail and lose heart and only a fool skips off into battle. Right? Only a fool. Listen, parents. I know we're on all kinds of different spectrum on how to educate our children, but only foolish parents just send their children off to school in the morning. Just, Have fun. You're sending your children into a war zone, literally. A war of ideas, a war of values. What is this demand of us as parents? God, lead them not into temptation. God, be with my children. God, help my children. Secondly, praying like this shows that we have a proper or healthy fear. We aren't puffed up in our our assessment of ourself. We realize how powerful Satan, our flesh, and the world really is, and we are no match for this enemy on our own. Charles Spurgeon says, we can never trust God too much, nor can we ever trust ourselves too little. So it's a prayer that as we lead, into the day. I don't know what temptation is going to come my way. Father, please lead me not to temptation because I don't know my, what my breaking point is. I don't want to be tested in that way and fail. Father, please don't lead me into temptation. Third, lastly, doesn't this, I think this is, this is probably the most shocking part of this prayer. Jesus says, Lead us, right? Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us. This is a prayer that's meant to be prayed in community. Now, Americans don't do this. This isn't a prayer of a solitary Christian. And his quiet time with the Lord, trying to resist sin all by himself and accomplish God's mission on their own. Jesus wants us to fight and fight sin together. Alone, we are clearly outmatched and outgunned. And Jesus says, oh, the last thing in the Lord's prayer is you should pray this together. Lead us not into temptation. We need true spiritual friends to ask us pointed questions like this. What are the specific temptations that you are facing right now? What are the specific temptations you are facing right now? Men, do you have another man that can look at you and ask you that question? The question is not, are you being tempted? Are you kidding me? How many of you walk around like there's this, oh, I, I bet that person over there is not being tempted. They're a great, I bet they're a great Christian. I can't share my temptations with people because I, there's something wrong with me. No, every single human being is Christian is being tempted by the world, the flesh, the devil right now. And so to ask your brother or your sister in missional community or fight club, brother, what specific ways are you being tempted right now? How is your faith being tested? Where are you being tempted right now to not trust the goodness and graciousness of God? This should be normal in our prayer life and our prayers together when we're talking with one another. Why? I can pray for you I can encourage you when I know specifically what's going on. Now, this prayer, Lord, lead us not in temptation. This is how you pray. When you get an accurate picture of the reality of the battle that we are in, say, Lord, help us. Lord, protect us. Lord, lead us not in temptation. We don't want to fail you again. I don't want to be a pastor who falls 10 years down the road, five years down the road and destroys my ministry, destroys the the work of God here. I have to pray this on a daily basis. Lead me not, Lord. Lead me not. I have to put men in my life to ask me hard questions, right? I have to do, it's no different for me. Men. Who do you want to be 30 years down the road? Do you want to be looking in the face of your wife or some other woman? Do you want your kids looking at you like he's the guy who left my mom? He's the guy who cheated on mom. Ladies, this isn't just for men. Who do you want to be? This prayer. See, this prayer makes the flirtatious wink at work. A reality, whoa, that was sniper fire. See, nobody just wakes up in bed with somebody else without making a hundred little decisions before that. Tiptoeing through the tulips and you don't realize that the wink is sniper fire aimed at your soul, ruining you, your family, your career, on and on and on. And the God's witness in the world in a lot of ways. This prayer says, help us remain steadfast under trial and temptation. Help us keep a wartime mentality. I don't trust myself. I don't have the strength to be victorious. Now, many churches could Use this and they could whip us up into a... This is why you gotta be strong. You gotta read your Bible more and you gotta listen to only Christian music and you gotta have a Christian bumper sticker on your car and wear Christian clothes, have Christian glasses, have Christian things on all your walls at work. You just gotta Christianize everything. That's how you win the war. No. Jesus says, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know what a deliver us is? Think of soldiers on the battlefield and they know they're outmatched and they know they're outgunned and they're calling in support. They're calling in evac. We got to have help. You got to get us out of here. We're not going to survive. And that's the reality of the Christian. The The prayer of the Christian is lead us not strengthen us while we're here, help us while we're here, but we're not going to be victorious. We need you to come get us. We need you. Our king has to come and rescue us out of this and be victorious. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Revelation where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and he's chained there for eternity and all the enemies of God are judged eternally there and he sets up his kingdom on this earth. That's what we're praying for in this prayer. I don't have the strength of character. I don't have the power of will to make it happen. God, deliver, deliver us. Rescue us. And that's the prayer this morning. That's the prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but if you do, strengthen us while we're there. Strengthen my weak knees. I'm... As we wait, this is, the, this is the great joy of the gospel. See, the gospel isn't just you can be forgiven of your sins, the gospel is the king is coming to restore and renew all things and the battle will be over. Not right now. We gotta have a wartime mentality now, but then we won't. Then the lion and the lamb will lay down together. See? So Jesus teaches us as we wait for God's kingdom to come, to pray for protection and to pray for deliverance. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says, clean yourself up, strengthen your character, become a better person, and you'll have acceptance with the gods and with yourself. Christianity says it's the exact opposite. Once you realize how hard it is to clean yourself up, how, hard, how strong of a battle you're in, the Christian throws his hands up and waves the white flag and says, deliver us, O Lord, I need rescue. I need your grace. If you've never done that, it's, a, it's something that happens within your heart where you go from trusting your own strength and trusting your own will and trusting your own intelligence to trusting God, trusting Christ as he's revealed in the word. It's a transfer of trust away from yourself and onto Jesus. It's saying, I can't live this life. I can't do it without the grace of Jesus Christ. An interesting thing, that's not just the way we become Christians. It's the way we grow as Christians. Last week, forgive us our debts. That's justification. This week, lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. This is sanctification. This is how we grow as Christians. We grow not by moving on from the gospel, but by going deeper into it. Father, I'm realizing more and more and more that I am weak in myself and I can't do this on my own. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ, our Lord. The same gospel that saves us, sanctifies us. Let me pray. Father, our hope is in you. You've written the story. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Nothing happens without your approval. And also, we also put our hope in Jesus Christ, our King, our Captain, our Warrior King, who will accomplish your plan perfectly. Every enemy will be thwarted. All evil will be removed. All darkness will be pushed out by the light of his coming. And we long for that day in the future. But Father, we also need strength for the battle today. So would you strengthen our weak knees? Would you put steel in our spine? Would you enable us to resist sin, to fight temptation? Would you preserve us? And again, our hope is in you. You are faithful you began a good work in us. You are the one who's going to complete it. All of our hope is in you. Father, I thank you for this meal on the battlefield. We are at war. There's danger all around us, and yet you've given us comrades here. You've given us brothers and sisters to fight together, and we get to come together this morning and take your body, and take your blood, and we get to have this meal on the battlefield that is a foretaste of the meal that will come in your new kingdom that will be a peaceful meal when all enemies have been conquered. But we get to have a foretaste of it right now. We eat and know Jesus is king. Jesus conquers. God wins. So would you let this meal Come into our bodies and into our spirits, into our souls and encourage us and strengthen us for the days ahead. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.